Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There you can find out more information about who we are and where we're headed as a church. Once again, thanks for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. A couple of weeks ago, I shared with you a statistic out of a news report that was reported by our local Fox 5 News. It was a report done out of a survey across the United States of America. And here's what I shared with you a couple of weeks ago. Nevada is the fifth most stressful state in the nation. So what you're feeling is correct, right? It's a stressful place to live according to this survey. What I didn't share with you a couple of weeks ago was as you read through this article, you can find it online, there were four key factors that they studied to understand anxiety and stress as it impacts communities across the United States. The four factors were work, money, family, and health and safety. Those four contributing factors were used to determine where the most stressful places in America were to live. But what, they, what I didn't tell you a couple of weeks ago is what drove us really to be the fifth most is, here's the other thing the news article reported, that Nevada ranked first for family-related stress. Nevada was the number one state in America as it pertained to family-related stress in this article. You can find this article online, and you can dig into it and, and research it for yourself. But the two most dominating factors that contributed to Nevada ranking so high as it pertains to family-related stress were the brokenness of marriage and the high rate of marriages coming to an end. And then secondly, the brokenness in parent-child relationships and the variety of issues that surfaced in these questions. So, if this morning we are an average Nevada crowd, then today there is a lot of anxiety and stress as it pertains to family relationships, even on Mother's Day, right? There's a lot of anxiety and stress. If we're a cross-section of our state, then there's a lot of us in the room <coughs> that are dealing with issues of stress and anxiety as it pertains to relationships in our family. So a couple of weekends ago, we launched into this series called Anxious About Everything, really trying to understand what the Bible has to say about being anxious. And we looked at a passage of Scripture as kind of our launching pad. And for two weekends, we've dug deep into these verses. So I want us to read these verses off the screen one last time. I would love to encourage you to memorize these verses so that they're in your arsenal, so that the Spirit of God can use them to give you victory in moments that could be anxiety. But look what it says. Let's read it together. One, two, three. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see the contrast here. Be anxious or experience the peace of God. And so the first thing we did in this series was we addressed the question, what does it mean to be anxious? And I gave you a definition of being anxious that I want to put back up here one last time. Being anxious is fearful concern experienced when life's demands seem greater than my ability to meet them. And what Paul writes to us in this letter and says is we should never do this. We should never be polarized or paralyzed by fearful concern over situations in our life. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about life's demands as they pertain specifically to relationships. We're going to give one example uh, out of all the areas where we deal with stress and anxiety in our lives. According to the statistics, Nevada, family-related stress is at the top. So we're going to address this issue of the demands of life pertaining to relationships and how we can navigate through relationships in a better way, enjoying the peace of God instead of being anxious. Now, what we're going to talk about about relationships today is very applicable inside of family. Husband-wife, parent-child, child-to-parent, parents to grandparents, but it's also applicable in all the other relationships in our life. Friendships, co-workers, people you go to school with, neighbors who live beside you, all of these principles are applicable across the board as we look at what Scripture says. But oftentimes, it's, it's situations in life, in relationships, where I realize, man, there's, there's tension, there's conflict, there's um, differences, and, and I don't know how to fix this, and that's what leads us to being anxious. So I want to give you some biblical principles today to try to address that. The second question we ask and answered in the series is, why should I not be anxious? And we're not going to go back through that today, but you can go online. The last two weekends, it's completely free. It doesn't cost you anything. We dealt with some general principles about what the Scripture says out of Philippians 4. I gave you five reasons why we shouldn't be anxious. The one at the top of the list is because God said, don't do it. Be anxious for nothing. And when God says don't do something, he's not saying don't do this to rob us of all the joy and pleasure of anxiety. God says don't do this because he knows it hurts us and it damages us. So the third question we answered last weekend, how do I keep from being anxious in my life? And I want to put those four things back up here because we're going to ping off one of them this morning. We said, first of all, if you're going to not be anxious, you got to know God. You'll never know the peace of God until you know the God of peace. It begins in a love relationship with him. And if you don't know him today, that's step number one. You need to come to know God and not face these issues in life relationally or other issues on your own anymore. Number two, I must live my life in constant fellowship with God. It's not enough just to have a relationship with God. I got to go deep in that relationship and moment by moment, day by day, draw strength from him through fellowship. Number three. I must be honest with God about the causes and concern, or the cares and concerns of my life. It's that idea of letting your requests be made known and the supplications. You're being honest with God about the thing. Instead of in the moments of stress and tension, looking to myself, I'm now running to my relationship with my Father and pouring out my heart to Him. Number four, I must be intentional about thanking God 
especially in stressful situations that tempt me to be anxious. Even in those life's circumstances, I need to learn the practice of gratitude. God, I don't understand it, but Lord, I thank you for what you're going to do in this situation and how you're going to use this for my good and your glory. So that's what we talked about so far the two weeks in the series. But I want to ping off of this second one. We said, I must live my life in constant fellowship with God. Here's what happens. As you and I live our lives in fellowship with God, daily, carving out time in the morning to be alone with God, and then moment by moment throughout the day, God then does a work of transformation in our lives that conforms us to the image of Jesus. You see, what you and I have been invited into in this thing called Christianity is not a religion. We've not been invited into a system of do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs, rules and regulations. We've not been invited into behavior modification, simply change your life so that you'll make God happy. No, what we've been invited to, invited into is an intimate, daily, personal, vibrant love relationship with God. And as you and I go to him daily and moment by moment, and we pursue intimate fellowship with him, God then does a work of transformation in me so that what comes out of me is not a better me. It's literally Christ in me. Let me show you a quote from a book. It's one of my favorite books. I try to read it every year. It's by a man named Major Ian Thomas. We may have some in our resource center. If not, you can find them online. But here, the title of the book is The Indwelling Life of Christ, and here's the quote. Major Thomas said this, the Christian life is nothing less than the life he lived then, lived now by him in you. Here's what that means, and I hope this sets you free today. Christianity is not you living for Jesus. It's not you living for Jesus. When I try to live for Jesus, you know how that turns out? Always in failure. Christianity is not me living for Jesus. Christianity is Jesus living his life in and through me. It's Christ in me living through me out of the overflow of a love relationship with him. He's not invited me to try to change my behavior. He's invited me to know him. The more I know him, the more he changes me on the inside. The more he changes me on the inside, what comes out of me is not a better me. It's Christ in me. He, by his spirit, begins to live in and through me. You say, what does this have to do with anxiety? Here's the bottom line. Being anxious is not who Jesus is. If you don't believe me, this afternoon, after all your Mother's Day festivities are over, get out your Bible, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You'll never one time find Jesus being anxious. You know why? It's not who he is. Now, there are times in a genuine sense of burden when he runs to the Father and cries out and pours his heart out to the Father, but you never see Jesus freaking out in the Gospels. He never panics. He's never anxious. Why? Because it's not who he is. 
Well, what's the Christian life? Me living for Jesus? No, it's Christ living his life in and through me. So when I'm allowing Christ to live his life through me, what does that mean? No anxious. Why? It's not who he is. Now, it is who we are in our flesh. When I'm choosing to live out of my resources versus Christ in me, anxiety, stress, tension. You see, understand that being anxious is not a family issue. Here's what I mean by that. Some people say, well, you know, I'm I'm a worrier, I'm anxious, but it's just in my family. It's the way my grandmother was. It's the way my mother was. It's just the way I, or it's the way my great-grandfather was. It's the way my dad was. It's just the way I, it's just a family thing. No, no, no. Being anxious is not a family issue. Being anxious is not a circumstance issue. Some people say, well, if you just understood my circumstances, if you were just in my shoes, in my situation, you'd be anxious. No, being anxious is not a situation or circumstance issue. Being anxious is not a temperament issue. Some people say, well, it's just the way I'm wired. It's just who I am. No, it's not a temperament. Listen, being anxious is a Christ-likeness issue. It's not who Jesus is. And when you and I are living anxiously, when our response to the situations and circumstances of our life is to be anxious, here's what that means. You and I are allowing the flesh to dominate and control rather than allowing Christ in us to live through us. That's why Paul wrote it this way in Romans chapter 13. Look at this verse. Paul said, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and do what? Make no what? That means don't give it any room. Don't give what any room? Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. He says, when you and I daily pursue intimacy with Christ and we allow Christ to fill us and live through us, here's what happens. We don't give any room for stuff like, we don't make any room for the flesh. No anxiety. Why? Because Christ in me is living through me. And what does that look like? Well, look what he said. Jesus said in John chapter 14, Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And remember, he said this in John 14. You do know what was about to happen next, right? Jesus was about to be arrested, beaten, crucified, buried, rise from the dead, give the disciples a mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus was about to go back to heaven, leave them here, send his Holy Spirit to give them the power to carry out this mission. They were about to face persecution. They were about to face struggle. They were about to face difficulty. Some of them were about to die for the sake of the gospel. And he said to them, peace. I give you peace. Even in the midst of all of that, my peace. So when I'm allowing Christ in me to live through me, it's peace, not being anxious. Now, Paul in Ephesians 4 addresses this in the context of relationships. 
you got your Bible, open it to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to spend the rest of our time in these verses. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 17, and then we're going to read down from verses 24 on. We're going to skip down to verse 24. But in verse 17, listen to what Paul says. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Here's what Paul's saying. Hey, I want to remind you of something. You're not who you used to be. Christ now lives in you. And Paul is challenging them. When Christ lives in you, he, through you, changes the way you live. Yes, you used to live like everybody else in the futility of your own mind, drawing from your own resources. But that's not how you're supposed to live anymore. Skip down to verse 24. Look what he says. And put on the new self which is in the likeness of God. What's he talking about? Christ in you has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. He's saying because Christ now lives in you, you're going to live differently. It's going to affect the way you live, the way you walk, the way you carry on your life. And now he's about to really get personal. He says in verse 25, therefore. Now, What have I always told you about this word? Anytime you see the word therefore, you need to look and see what? What it's there for, right? Because the word therefore is a word of transition in Scripture. This word is a word that means based on what I've just said, now I want to make some application. What did he just say? You're not who you used to be. Christ now lives in you. And moment by moment, you and I are to put on, just what Paul said in Romans 13, we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we do that? By pursuing intimate fellowship with him. And Paul says, when you do that, therefore, now he's going to give us some practical application. Look what he says. Laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer. But rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for, the edifi- good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Here's what he's saying. When you and I don't allow Christ in us to live through us in the way that we relate to people around us, it grieves the work of the Holy Spirit of God in and through our lives. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So the time we have left... I want to give you this morning five questions that we must answer if we're going to deal with being anxious in our relationships moment by moment, day by day, as we encounter anxiety and stressful moments in relationships, these five questions, it's not an exhaustive list, but these are the ones that Paul mentions here, so we're going to address them. Number one, am I being honest in this relationship? Am I being honest? Look how Paul opens this section. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth. 
Don't lose the context. Paul has just talked about Christ in us, living through us. We don't live the way we used to live. What's one evidence of that? Now in my relationships, there's no longer falsehood. There's speaking the truth. The word falsehood is a general word in the New Testament for lying. It sometimes mean, we, means we lie by what we say, but it also includes the idea of us lying by what we don't say. You can be dishonest by speaking dishonest things, or you can be dishonest by withholding that which is true in the moment when it should be spoken. Paul compares that with this idea of speaking truth. No longer are we to be deceptive in our relationships as Christ in us lives through us. Now we speak the truth. This idea of speaking the truth describes an ongoing continuous action. Now the regular rhythm of my life relationally is not to be dishonest, but it's to speak truth. This word speak the truth means to keep it real all the time. If we were posting this on social media, we'd say it's keeping it a hundred, right? We're just keeping it real all the time. Are you allowing a relationship to constantly be a source of stress and anxiety in your life because you're avoiding honesty in the relationship. Try to illustrate it. My wife and I, we, we, we're, we're married. And this, this thing of relationship stress, it doesn't have to be marriage, but I'm just going to give you an example from our lives. In, in our marriage, I know you're going to find this extremely hard to believe, but there are things that I do that stress my wife out. I know, I know it's hard to believe. I know it's hard to believe. But there are things that I do that stress her out and, and create moments of anxiety. There, there are things that she does that, that, that stresses me out. Here, here's an example of one that we, we've talked about. I'm the type of person that if you're not 15 minutes early, you're late. Now, I know already I just drew a line in the congregation. Some of you heard me said that, say that. You said, thank God somebody in church finally. Others of you heard that and said, oh, gosh, he's one of those, right? I know. I know I drew a line in the congregation. But, but, but if you're not early, you're late. And it stresses me. It creates moments of anxiety when I got to run to the Lord, right? When everybody's not in the car and we're ready to go on time. But here's what my wife's communicated to me. It stresses her out when I get stressed out about people being late. So that's a catch-22, right? But here's the key. We've, we've talked about it. And we've tried to communicate and be honest about it so as in the power of the Holy Spirit, each of us tries to avoid those actions and reactions that will create those moments of tension. Now, we're not perfect people. We still have them. But, but we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ in us, we try to... But the key is we had to talk about that to understand. Here's what's not right. In relationships, it's not right to keep hidden landmines that the other person in the relationship doesn't know about until they step on it and it blows up and now there's tension, anxiety, and stress everywhere because of the carnage from stepping on that landmine. The key is communication. You and I have a responsibility in every relationship, and it's twofold. Number one, I have a responsibility to live honestly and communicate those things that create stress in the relationship from my perspective. But there's another responsibility. 
I have a responsibility to, in the power of the Holy Spirit, avoid those things, actions, words, reactions that create stress in others. So the key is honesty. It's who Christ is in us, being transparent, humbling ourselves, not holding things, keeping them hidden, not falsehood, not lying, not being deceptive, but being honest. But listen, being honest is not just speaking, it's also listening. It's two sides. Well, I told them what makes me anxious, and there's, the, no, there's also listening to what triggers that in them in the relationship. And as you and I focus on honest, open communication, we try to remove some of those landmines that create those moments of anxiety and tension in the relationship. Make sense? Number two, am I harboring anger about things that have happened in this relationship in the past? Am I harboring anger? Look what Paul says next, verse 26. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. <laughs> Almost feels schizophrenic, right? He says, he started, get angry. Don't get angry. And do not give the devil an opportunity. What's he talking about? Well, you got to understand these two words, anger and angry, are not the same word in the original language. The first word, angry, <coughs> when he says be angry, is a word that means to become provoked. It can be good or bad. Here's how we know that. Even Jesus is said to have been this at times in the New Testament. It's a response to injustice. It's a response to wrong. It's a righteous response, listen, that leads to righteous action. I see something wrong. It inspires in me a godly anger, and it leads me to righteous action, righteous action, which is reconciliation, which is whatever it may be, whatever the need of the moment is, it's a right response to injustice, and it leads me to righteous action. The other word, angry here, or anger here, is a word that means aroused or seething exasperation. It's a deep-seated resentment over something done to me. It's a type of anger that does not let go. This anger leads to righteous action. This anger leads to resentment and bitterness and grudge and holding on to it. See the difference? One is an anger that leads to righteous action. The other leads to resentment and bitterness and seething anger. When I live with this kind of anger, the second kind, when I live with this relationally, here's what happens. I only begin to see the other person from that perspective. And ultimately, even the sight of them begins to create anxiety and tension and stress. Why? Because I'm only seeing them through the filter of what they did and I'm mad about it. <laughs> Hadn't done anything about it. I'm just mad about it. You say, what am I supposed to do? Forgive. If you go down to verse 32... Paul says, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. I'm angry. It's injustice. 
But one of the righteous actions that's born out of it is forgiveness. You say, whoa, whoa, whoa. They didn't ask for forgiveness yet. Hey, aren't you glad Jesus didn't wait to go to the cross until we asked for it? Before I even knew I needed forgiveness, he already forgave. And what did he say? You're to forgive just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Oh, I don't have the capacity to forgive like that. Hey, you're right. And I don't either. But what's Paul talking about? Christ in us. The same God that forgave you now lives inside of you and desires to manifest through you a radical expression of forgiveness that can only be described as the life of Christ in us. And listen, when Christ forgives us, he doesn't hold it against us. When Christ forgives us, he doesn't see us as that person who wronged him. When Christ forgives us, the Bible says he even chooses not to remember it again. Verse 27 states that when we don't deal with anger this way, we give the devil an opportunity. What does that mean? It means that we're making room for the enemy to have his way in our lives. When you get that kind of deep-seated anger, I'm going to hold on to this, and I'm never going to forget it, and I'm only going to see you this way from now on. Here's what you've done. You've invited the enemy to just have his way in your own heart and life. Roy Hessian said this in a book. I love this quote. Listen to what he said. God wants me to see that it was not the thing that the person did that matters, but my reaction to it. Now, not minimizing somebody else's wrong. Here's the deal. I can't do anything about their wrong. I can only deal before God with my response to what's happened, to what's been wrong. Number three, am I focused on what I can get from this relationship? Or am I focused on what I can give to this relationship. Look at verse number 28. You read this, first of all, you think it's not have anything to do with relationships. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather must labor, performing with his hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. What does that have to do with relationships? Well, the word share is a very relational word. It's actually a compound word in the Greek language, has two parts to it. One part is the word with or together. The other part is the word that means to give or to invest. You put it together and you get the word share. It means I'm to give, I'm to invest in someone that I'm with. I'm together with them. It's a very relational term. So get this, when you steal... You believe that you are entitled to what somebody else has. They exist to meet my need. When you share, you believe others should be blessed by what you have. You exist to meet their need. See the difference? So here's the question. Are you stressed out in a relationship because you are only focused on how they are not meeting your needs? Maybe, maybe God doesn't have them in your life for what they can do for you. Maybe God has them in your life because of what he desires to do in their life through you. So here's what happens. We create these expectations on people in relationships and we pile them up. And when they're not meeting our expectations, it creates all this anxiety, all this tension, all this stress. But rather than looking to that person, 
Run to the feet of the Father. Father, how do you desire to use me to make a difference in their lives? And you trust God to meet your needs rather than looking to somebody else. Number four, am I seizing every opportunity to speak grace into this relationship? Am I seizing every opportunity to speak grace? Look at the next verse, verse 29. Let no, and look, I want you, we're just reading this right out of the text. Here's verse 29. Let no unwholesome word. Don't forget what we said at the beginning. Paul said, hey, you're different now. Christ in you, living through you, begins to look differently. How does it look different? You begin to live honest. You begin to live in such a way as you're forgiving and not angry. You begin to live in such a way that you're looking to serve others rather than be served by others. Now he says, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give great to those who hear. Listen to this. This is very important. In relationships, words are powerful. So choose them carefully. Here's how powerful they are. The writer of Proverbs says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. That's about as extreme of a contrast as you can get. Death and life. So the writer of Proverbs says the wise thing to do relationally is choose your words very carefully. And in this verse, Paul tells us three things about how we're to choose our words. Number one, what we say is very important. He says, don't choose unwholesome words. To get an idea of what this word means in the Greek language... Picture that banana that sat on the kitchen counter way too long. You know that one that you're afraid to really grab because you're afraid it's just going to... It's brown and black and ugly. It's just a... It's a rot. The word unwholesome is a word that means rotten, ruined, repulsive. That's this word. Paul says, don't choose those words. He says, rather, choose words for edification. It's a word that means building up. It's building up as a process. Here's the point. In my relationships, everything I say should be a part of building the other person up, never from the perspective of trying to tear them down. Why? Because that's not who Christ is. And Christ is living in and through it. So what we say is important. But here's the second thing. When we say what we say is important, Paul said, according to the need of the moment. Here's what that means. It's possible to say the right thing at the wrong time. So it's not just that I'm saying the right thing. I need to say it at the right time. Proverbs speaks about this. Let me show you a couple of Proverbs. Proverbs 15, 23. Look what he says. A man has joy in an apt answer, and how delightful is a... Say that word out loud. He didn't just say how delightful is a word, how delightful is a timely word. I got to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit of God that I'm not just saying the right thing, but I'm saying it at the right time. Here's another proverb, 25, Proverbs 25, 11. Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in, say it out loud, right circumstances, meaning this. A word spoken in wrong circumstances is not like an apple of gold and settings of silver. It's like what? A rotten banana on the kitchen counter. Wrong thing at the wrong time. Here's the third piece of this. How we say what we say when we say it is important. I put it up here because I knew you wouldn't remember that if I didn't write it. 
how we say what we say when we say it's important. You hear what Paul said? Edification, need of the moment. But then he said, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Here's what this means. It's possible to say the right thing at the right time in the wrong way. In the wrong way. Proverbs talks about this as well. Proverbs 15 verse 1. Look what it says. A gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise. Don't miss this. Look at this. The tongue of the wise makes what? Knowledge acceptable. Here's what that means. How you say it. The tone. The tenor. The heart. How you say it. Can determine whether or not they're going to hear what it is you're trying to say. Here's what he's saying. Those who are walking wisely, those who are allowing Christ in them to live through them, you're choosing your words very carefully. You're looking for the right moment, and you're praying that God, by his Holy Spirit, gives you the right heart to say the right thing at the right time. Another verse in Colossians chapter 4 says, Let your speech always be seasoned or excuse me, your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how to respond to each person. Here's a question. Am I causing stress in my relationships because of what I say or how I say it or when I say it? One last question. Everybody all right so far? Number five. Am I dealing with this relationship in my strength or allowing Christ in me to live through me? Am I dealing with this relationship in my strength or allowing Christ in me to live through me? And here's the way we want to close. Look at the last two verses, verse 31 and 32. He kind of goes through a litany here. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. What's all this? This is how we react in our own flesh, right? You let me choose to grab for my own resources. Here's what it's going to be. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. That's how we react in the flesh. But look what he said. Let all that be put away. And here's what you do. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And I know what you're thinking. Same thing I am. I, I can't do that in my own strength. And you are right. But as we moment by moment pursue intimacy with the Father, as we pursue this relationship that he's invited us into, he begins to do a work of transformation in us so that what comes out of us is not a better us. It's literally Christ in us. And it begins to deal with these things in our lives. Here's one last quote by Roy Hessian. Every humiliation, everyone who tries and vexes us is God's way of breaking us. So that there is yet a deeper channel in us for the life of Christ. Are you allowing Christ in you to live through you relationally? Let's pray together today. Father, we ask in the name of Jesus in this moment, God, as only you can, that you would speak. God, that you would begin to Lord, convict and challenge and reveal, Lord, things in our heart and in our life that need to be changed in this moment. As you sit quietly before the Lord, we're about to stand and sing a final song of worship. Not a time to slip out early. Bunt cake's going to be waiting on you. Don't worry. 
We're going to sing this song of worship. It's an opportunity for you and I to respond. The first question I want to ask you today is, do you know Christ? Listen, if you don't know Jesus, you can't behave your modification your way out of this stuff. It's only Christ in you that can set you free. If you don't know him today, when we stand to sing this song of worship in just a moment, we have pastors all along the front up here. And if you've never come to know Christ, when we stand and begin to sing, you just slip out from where you're going to be standing. Come to one of these pastors, and here's all you have to say today. I need Jesus. That's it. And we'll have somebody sit down with you and open a Bible and show you how you can begin a personal relationship with God today. That's the starting point. You can't know the peace of God until you know the God of peace. You've got to come to him first. But then secondly, if you're here today and you already know Christ, here's the question I have for you. Are you allowing Christ in you to live through you and affect the way you handle relationships in your life? We just read right out of God's word how he, he, the Christ in us changes the way we relate to others. Maybe you just want to come and get in one of these altars and just kneel and be alone and have some time praying and talking to God. You can come today. Maybe you want to come pray with one of our pastors about something in your job, your health, your family, your relationship, your marriage, whatever it is. We'd be honored to pray with you and for you. This is an opportunity for you to worship God and you to respond to what God is saying to you through his word. Lord, have your way in this moment. Use it for your glory and honor. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.